Matthew 5, 11 to 16. On January 8, 1956, five young men lay dead on a beach in the jungles of Ecuador. All in their 20s or early 30s, all married, most with young children. The five had been speared to death by the fearsome, ruthless Aka Indians who they were trying to reach with the good news about Jesus Christ. The most famous of the five was the young, bright, energetic Jim Elliot. And as the world digested this news, there was actually a 10-page Life magazine article on it back in the 1950s. Many could only ask, why this waste of young, promising lives? And the same could be said of the, the Beatitudes, which we began looking at in September as we began our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Why this waste, Jesus? Why are you encouraging us to waste our lives? We saw, didn't we, how countercultural, how counterintuitive, how upside down the Beatitudes are. In these wisdom saying, sayings, Jesus sketches out a profile of the kind of people whom Jesus says will get to live the good life, fortunate lives, lives which flourish, blessed lives, now that the kingdom of heaven is coming to earth. And it's not who we'd expect. It's not those with a degree from an Ivy League school. It's not those who make it in Hollywood or on Broadway or in professional sports. It's not those who get elected to high office or make six or seven figures. Not those who find their true love or who have a nice family and live in a nice house and go to a nice church in the suburbs. None of those things. Who instead does Jesus say are going to flourish? The poor in spirit. Those who mourn as if in exile. The meek. The merciful. The peacemakers. The persecuted. Those whose lives seem like a waste. The, the lowly. The harmless. The left behinds. Not because they are have-nots. Poverty and powerlessness itself doesn't get you points with God, but rather because people with such hearts are receptive. They're hungry. They're open to the kingdom that is coming. A kingdom we saw which is going to turn the world upside down, or to be more accurate, a kingdom which is actually turning the world right side up. We all know what the future world should look like, right? We know that it should be characterized by love and by peace. Why can't we all just get along, we wistfully ask? Well, one day, we will. And the way to that future work, Jesus says, involves living the life of the future now. With mercy, with meekness and gentleness, by making peace. This way is the right side up way, not the upside down way. But here's the thing, if, if you live the way of the future now, if you live the right side up way now in an upside down world, you get persecuted for it. The last Beatitudes particularly hard to swallow, right? Blessed, fortunate, flourishing are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. 
then as if to underscore the point, this is the one beatitude that Jesus elaborates upon. Fortunate, good for you, you lucky bums, blessed are you, you who people insult, persecute, and falsely say all kinds of evil against because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Why, Jesus? Why are those who are persecuted for you the ones who are so fortunate? Those who are insulted, those who people lie about, saying all kinds of nasty things which aren't true, why are they going to flourish? Because they are living the life of the future now. And and because they will have a great reward, Jesus says, when the future fully comes, when, when the kingdom of heaven comes. Now notice something important here. It's something Jesus is going to say again and again as as he continues his sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And that is that there are rewards in store for those who follow his teaching. And Jesus expects that if we're wise, we will be motivated by those rewards. Jesus isn't appealing just to some superior morality here on our part. He's appealing also to our calculating common sense motivation of how to get the best reward in the end. You see, Jesus is not Immanuel Kant, that German philosopher who said that if there's any hint of self-interest or selfishness in our moral acts, then they're tarnished and they don't count as purely moral. That may be German ethical philosophy, but it's not Jesus' philosophy in the Sermon on the Mount. No, Jesus says, just be smart about it. Just realize how the world is going to turn out in the end and live your life now in such a way as to maximize your reward in the end. Which involves living the life of the future now. So why waste your life on Jesus' radical upside-down way? Answer, reward. That's the first reason Jesus gives, that we should pursue the sort of life, the sort of character sketched out in the Beatitudes. We should live that upside-down life because the reward will be great. We will receive the kingdom of heaven and comfort and being God and being among his children and getting to inherit the earth and having our hunger for justice and righteousness filled. And therefore, we will be flourishing and being blessed and living the good life. But now in today's passage, Jesus gives us a second reason. A second reason to live the right-side-up way of life now in an upside-down world. And that is that if we live the life of the Beatitudes, we will be important. We will be needed. We will have an impact, a positive effect in the way the world turns out in the end. Wow, huh? What a purpose for our lives. Take a minute and notice with me the the connection that that Jesus draws between the Beatitudes and this famous passage we're looking at today about the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Eric Costantino pointed this out last Sunday. Notice in verse 11, Jesus switches to the second person plural, you. The first eight Beatitudes, they're, they're all in the third person. Blessed are they, blessed are they, blessed are they. And then in verse 11, he switches. Blessed are you when people persecute you. 
And then what do we find in verse 13? You, second person plural, are the salt of the earth. You, second person plural, are the light of the world. Who's the you in verses 11 or 13 to 16? This is where those section breaks that get added into our English Bibles, which are not in the original Greek text, are not always helpful. Because in this case, the break cause us to miss the connection Jesus is making between the Beatitudes, especially the last Beatitude about being persecuted, and our text today about being salt and light. Who is the salt? Who is the light? You are, Jesus says. You who are persecuted. And indirectly, by extension, you who are poor in spirit, you who mourn, you who are meek, you who live out the good life described in the Beatitudes. If you live that upside-down life, which is really a right-side-up life, you will not only be rewarded, but you will also have an impact. God will use your life to have an impact. Let's focus this morning on that impact, which Jesus describes in verses 13 to 16. When I was in my 20s, I I once did a month-long internship at a church in Amsterdam. It was actually the church that Phil and Lydia Lucas... Uh, who many of you know, um, it's the church they met in. And this church was part of a network of churches which were aspiring to be what they called high-impact churches. I love that phrase, high-impact church. That's what Jesus is talking about here in this passage. It's what Jesus wants for his followers. And I often ask myself about CBC, are we a high-impact church? Are we having a significant impact on Westchester County? If, if we disappeared tomorrow, would anyone notice? Would, would the loss of our impact be felt? And what does it take to be a high-impact church? What are the ingredients? What are the qualities? Well, let's see what Jesus has to say about this in, in today's passage. I, I see two qualities here which go into having such an impact. First is that we have to be distinctive, different, countercultural. And then the second is that we have to be engaged, involved, present. Or to use the first image that Jesus uses, the salt of the earth has to, first of all, be salty. And second, it has to get out of the salt shaker. There was a book written by that name out of the salt shaker, and into whatever it's meant to salt. So let's take a look at how Jesus develops these two thoughts in this passage. First, he says, you, plural, you are my followers, together. You as a community of those who live out the upside-down life of the Beatitudes. You who are fortunate, blessed, flourishing. You are salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Salt of the earth. What does that mean? Well, in Jesus' day, salt was used in a number of ways. I'll just mention a few. First, obviously, it was used to flavor food. Have you ever tried a no-salt diet? Not very tasty, right? Bland, boring. Second, salt was used to preserve food. Let's say you're a fisherman, like 
some of Jesus' disciples and you get a great large catfish. You can't eat it all. You, you can't even necessarily sell it all quickly enough in the hot desert climate. No refrigeration. So what do you do? You, you salt it to preserve it so it will last, so it doesn't spoil in the waste. Third, salt was used not only for flavor to uh, preserve food, it was also used in covenant ceremonies to represent the commitment, the faithful trust between the parties making the covenant. Salt has various uses. It has many uses. And it was so important in Jesus' day that the Romans had a saying about it. They, There's nothing more useful than sun and salt. So which of salt's uses does Jesus have in mind? One of them? All of them? Well, Jesus doesn't say. But whatever use you think of or you think Jesus means, here's what's always true about salt in every case. Salt is different and distinct. Salt is different from food. That's why it flavors it. Salt is distinct from meat. That's why it preserves it. And what's the effect of salt's difference, of salt's distinctiveness? Well, it's beneficial. It has a good effect. It improves flavor. It preserves meat. When you add it, good things happen. In fact, I think you could go so far as to say, at least in Jesus' day, that salt is so good that it is essential. It's necessary. Imagine a world with no salt. Food would be bland. Meat wouldn't be preserved, at least in Jesus' day, without refrigeration. Salt was and, and is so important, a necessity of life. It's different. It's, it's distinct from what it gets used on. And that difference, that distinction, makes it good, makes it even essential. You, Jesus says, are the salt of the earth. The world needs you to be distinct. Whether they know it or not, whether they persecute you or not, you have to be salty. You, you have to be distinctive. You have got to be countercultural. If you aren't, if you lose your saltiness, if you claim to follow Jesus but you don't live the life of the Sermon on the Mount, the life of the Beatitudes, you won't be salty. You won't be different. You won't add any flavor. You won't preserve the rot. You won't be useful for anything. Why has God called us to himself? Why has he called us to follow Jesus? Well, to give us a blessed life, a good life, a life which flourishes, yes. A life which in the end enjoys an incredible reward. But that's not all. We've also been called for another purpose. And that's to be salt, to be different, to be distinct, to be countercultural. And if we fail to be what we're called to be, we're useless, Jesus said, except to be discarded and thrown out. And so here's my concern about most of us, myself included. And that is that we all went through the junior high and high school grades. And what was the, one of the number one pressures, almost a survival skill for being a teenager? Fit in. <laughs> to, to be like everyone else, right? 
I remember one time arguing with my dad in a Sears store about a pair of jeans. I needed a new pair. He didn't have a lot of money, and the Sears jeans were a lot cheaper. But I had to have the Levi's. I just had to. In fact, I, I broke into tears as probably a 15-year-old in Sears. Why? Because everyone else had the Levi's. I just had to be like them. Because what happens when you're a teenager and you're different? Well, unless you're the most popular one and set the trends for everyone else, if you're different, you get singled out, you get picked on. And so I think a lot of us who, who experience this were traumatized by this pressure. <laughs> and we were conditioned to want to be like everyone else. To, to fit in, to go along with the crowd. But, but here's what Jesus says. He says, you can't follow me and keep fitting in and keep going along. Just the opposite. You have to be different and distinct. You have to be countercultural, like salt. If you lose your saltiness, you're, you're not good for anything anymore. If you just live like everyone else, how can you fulfill your purpose, the purpose you're in this world for? which is to live the life of the future now, the, to live an upside-down life, a life of peacemaking, a life of mercy, a life of meekness and humility, a life of integrity and righteousness. Notice Jesus doesn't call us to be obnoxious or weird for weirdness' sake. He's not asking us to spout Christianity or to shoehorn the name of Jesus into every conversation, whether it fits or not. Or to outfund or to outpolitic the opposition. No, what does he ask us to do? To, to live out the Beatitudes. Not, not only to live an upside-down life, but to have an upside-down influence. That is, to be an influence in an upside-down way. Not by overpowering, not by... Uh, out-influencing through, through uh, the world's ways, but by taking the way of the cross. Live like that, Jesus says, and you'll be different. You will be salt. And here's the problem if, if we as God's people don't live this out. If we're not countercultural together as a community in the way the Beatitudes describe not only are we worthless to the world, worthless to God's mission in the world, but we are damaging to the followers of Jesus who are actually trying to follow Jesus. You see, when you are living counterculturally and upside down, you have to go out in the world and risk. Risk your reputation, risk your chances to succeed even. When you're trying to swim upstream, you're, you're trying to be countercultural, and, and you're facing the, the real possibility of persecution and opposition for doing it, how do you do it? How do you stay salty? Well, you need a group of people that you can come home to, so to speak, at the end of the day, at the end of the week, and they love you and they encourage you and you know that they're in it with you. And what happens if you try to follow Jesus out in the world and then you come to church and they think you're weird too? That you're too radical, that you're too upside down, 
Because the church people are complacent. They're worldly. Then you have nowhere to turn. You're utterly alone. Even in the place that's supposed to be home. You see, I can't be countercultural alone. I can't live the life Jesus calls us to. I can't be salty without you. Without your partnership and encouragement. And, and you aren't going to do it without others either. We need together to be countercultural. You, plural, Jesus says, are the salt of the earth. And then Jesus goes on and compares us to light. We all get this metaphor, right? Light and darkness. Again, light is distinct. It's different from darkness. It's beneficial. It's necessary. Light, by its very nature, is the opposite of darkness. You can't, or, or, uh, yeah, you can't imagine a world with no light. Light is absolutely good. It's absolutely necessary. So let me ask you, back to the question of being a high-impact church. How bright is our bulb here at CBC? In terms of the Beatitudes, the life Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount, living faithfully and consistently the upside-down life that Jesus talks about, how evident is that life in your life and in our lives as a church? If you were to put it in watts, in, in terms of, of how many watts is our brightness? Are, are we a, a flashlight bulb? You know, maybe three or four watts? Are we a 40-watt bulb? Are we a 100-watt halogen bulb? How bright is our impact? How much do we live the way of life described in the Beatitudes? To be salt, to be light. We've got to be distinctive. We've got to be countercultural. That's the first quality that, that we have to have to have an impact. And then the second one, and I'll spend less time on this one, the second quality is that we've got to be engaged and involved in the world around us. As Jesus put it, not hidden under a bushel or a bowl or in a log cabin. Who lights a light and hides its light? That makes no sense. Light is meant to shine. It, it can't help but shine. That's what light is for. A city on a hill can't be hidden. A lamp on a stand gives light to everyone in the house. It's crazy to light a light and then to hide its light so that it can't shine. The very purpose of a light, the very purpose of Jesus' followers is that we be engaged and involved out where people can see us. As Jesus put it, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. And the word good here in the original Greek, it, it can also be translated beautiful or beneficial. It's not just good in a moral sense, although it includes that, but there's another Greek word for just good in a moral sense. The word that's used here also means attractiveness. It means beneficialness. The deeds Jesus is talking about here, the life of the Beatitudes is, is good because it's attractive and it's beneficial. Think of the impact someone like a Mother Teresa had on the broader culture. Or the impact that Amish community had some years ago when they forgave and they befriended the family of the one who had shot their children in that one-room schoolhouse. Think of the attractiveness of those good deeds. Like a lamp lit in darkness. Like a city on a hill on a dark night. So let's think about our church. 
there's an attractiveness to our church, right? A warmth, a welcoming spirit, a, a practical and sacrificial caring for one another. So let me ask, to what extent is Westchester County aware of that goodness? Do they see it? Do they know? Are we shining? To shine, we, we have to be engaged. We have to be involved. Not so people praise us. Later in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he'll warn us about our motivation. We, we shouldn't do good things so we get praised or honored for it. No, we should do them so God gets honored. So God gets the glory. As people look at us, as they get to know us up close, as they get to taste through us what it looks like for Jesus to turn the world right side up, instead of a group that, that pursues power and is, is motivated by our own comfort and security and condones the use of violence when necessary to protect our place in the world, instead, if they look at us and they see a group of people who are pure in heart, and who live with integrity, who are merciful, who are gentle and meek, who work to make peace, and are willing to face persecution for it as a result. If we live like that, we will have an upside-down influence. And people will get a taste of what heaven looks like. A taste that it's coming to this earth when Jesus returns and turns the world right side up again. And that this coming kingdom of heaven is already bubbling up among those who follow Jesus now. When people see that among us, some of them will glorify God and they'll say, Wow, God must be good. God has good plans and hopes for this world. These people are proof of that. And that's our purpose. To be light. To be that salt. It's not a waste to live the life of the Beatitudes, the life of the future, the upside-down life now. Because not only will we be rewarded for it, but we will be salt and light, an upside-down influence in the world. So as we close, how bright is our bulb? Are we a high-impact church? Are we distinctive? Are we countercultural? in the ways Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount? And are we involved and engaged in the world around us so that they can see and taste what we are? We want to be, right? That's our vision as a church. It's to be transformed into that countercultural people. A people who love like Jesus loves and a people who are out there engaged in God's mission in a changing world. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would continue to make us a high-impact church. We know that you want us to shine brightly. May we be different in the ways Jesus describes. May we be involved and engaged. Show us the next step for each one of us. Show us the next step for our church. And God, Jesus raises the challenge very high in this sermon, in this passage. And if we're feeling um, condemned, if we're feeling like a failure, 
we ask for your mercy, that you'd forgive us for our shortcomings, and that you would give us the grace we need to want to change and to take the steps we need to become the transformed people you want us to become. Thank you for your patience with us along the way. Help us, give us the grace to take the next step. Amen.